We'll be reading from Luke chapter 9, this last paragraph. And I've entitled the sermon, A Crucial Life. Last week, on the previous paragraph, as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross, that was a crucial turn. Here, Jesus knows where he's going, but he's looking at his disciples and looks to see if they are living a crucial, a cross-centered life. Hear the word of God. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Amen. Uh, This summer, we're into the month of July, and... uh, Uh, Many of us have already been to some summer weddings. June is probably the big wedding month, isn't it? And as we look at uh, families uh, and relatives coming and going, and we see those newlyweds, they sure stand out. Got to see if I got any newlyweds here I can pick on. Newlyweds, they're still holding hands and sitting close, right? We remember. And the honeymoon phase, may it last a long, long time. It's appropriate, isn't it, for someone who's taken vows in the presence of God that I give you myself to have and to hold. I take you, I'll be yours, you'll be mine. When those arrangements have been made, you usually see it lived out. They, they, they say, well, should we move into your apartment or mine or pick a new one? And they have a shared address. Many times they have a shared name and, and they share their life. Those newlyweds. There's something wrong when someone's newlywed, but their life doesn't change. Hey, that was great last weekend when we had those vows and stuff. I'm going fishing with the guys. I'll be back in a week. When lives don't change, it seems that the new commitment is not front and center. One of the lines I share with those who are counseling to be married is what scripture shares. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one. We talk about leaving and cleaving. When you make this new relationship, this new family, other relationships have to adjust. And your commitment needs to be clear. 
This paragraph where Luke has written down for us three little snippets of conversations between Jesus and his followers or Jesus and those who were near show us something about discipleship. It's a call to examine ourselves. Are we like any of these purported followers? Are we hesitating? Are we half-hearted? Are we hasty? God's word should provoke some self-examination. I remember reading this the first time as a young believer, this passage, and thinking, wow, those are odd responses. Not just what the people were saying, but what Jesus was saying. It was hard for my young Christian mind to understand. But it's clear, if not provocative, to make a point. If you're going to follow Jesus, we need to set our face towards the cross, as it were. Our face towards Christ. And he has to be first in our life. First in our priorities. First in our hearts. Today's sermon is called to test your heart. Are you following Christ? Let's break down the three case studies, if you will, and and look at them one at a time. The first test of discipleship comes up in this uh, uh, really zealous volunteer. Notice how it begins in verse 57. They're going along. There are some disciples, and perhaps this guy was at the fringe of the pack, or he was just joining the group. He sees him. He sees Jesus. Maybe he was running up. I don't know how you picture it. But he comes to Jesus. He initiates, right? What does he say? Um, I will follow you wherever you go. Someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. He knew that Jesus called people to follow him. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Repent to believe the good news. Follow me. He heard, he heard the message clearly. And he did a right thing responding to Jesus. Yet he doesn't just say, I will follow you. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. He was listening to that talk about Jerusalem. He heard about the Messiah's suffering as Jesus foretold his death twice in this chapter, Luke tells us. And so he boldly, and perhaps even hastily, said, I will follow you wherever you go. Anything wrong with that? Well, how does Jesus respond? That's, that, how do we understand that? Let's see what Jesus thought as the young men spoke to him. What did Jesus say in the next verse? Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to follow me. It's not like we're going back to my den, back to my house, back to my nest. Follow me and I'll show you how to have the things of life. No, the Son of Man says, you don't really get the things of this world when you follow me. There is no home. There's no set provision. There's unknown ahead. Jesus apparently sees this man as hasty. Someone who has not fully thought through what's coming out of his mouth. 
He's brimming with zeal. And frankly, a lot of evangelical churches would, would grab this guy and, and probably give him a job in the church. So it's interesting that Jesus is a little more discerning of what it means to be a disciple, not just a lot of zeal showing up and saying, let me do it. Jesus seems to be saying that the call to follow me is difficult. It can be rough. And Jesus seems to give him a caution. You sure? You need to think this through. That's only consistent with the other things Jesus taught about following him, right? If you read your Bible, you know Jesus said many things about following him. Number one is you need to be ready to take up your cross and follow him. There has to be a measure of self-denial. Now, when Jesus says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, let's be clear, he's not teaching that Christians need to be homeless or not have cars or sleep outside. That's not his point. It's not a an economic principle he's laying down. He's laying down a principle of spiritual realities about his mission and who he is if you're going to commit to him. So there's no need to imitate his Spartan lifestyle per se. You don't need to be celibate. It's okay to marry. Jesus said a lot of good things about marriage. He even said some good things about home ownership and stewardship. So let's just let the record reflect that. What is he seeking? Jesus is seeking a person to have a settled, measured, thoughtful set of values and priorities that puts Jesus first, that thoughtfully is ready and willing to give up everything if that's required. If that's required. I've read enough church history to know that sometimes it is required to give up everything. Not that long ago, just a couple of centuries ago, Protestant believers in in Britain were burned at the stake for the things we preach from this pulpit. Their lives were forfeit because they believed in the scriptures, in the gospel. Christians today and certain continents are always in the crosshairs for what they believe. Don't be a hasty disciple, but instead, what would Jesus want us to do? Instead, prepare, think, and count the cost. That's what Jesus wants. He wants this guy to follow him. He says, okay, but you're going to cross this line. Do you know what you're getting into? In a few more chapters, in Luke 14, you're welcome to take a look. Luke 14, Jesus has some things to say about the cost of discipleship. Many things similar to what this paragraph has to say. But let me just point to one of them, Luke 14, verse 28, as Jesus makes this principle clear. Luke 14, 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, it's kind of a parable, Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able 
to finish. You've got to back up your words and be prepared for that. If you say, I am a Christian, do you know what that will cost you? Perhaps you haven't imagined that. Jesus says, think and count the cost. Are you ready to endure? The Apostle Paul, we love his conversion story, but he quickly rose and became a leader among the Christians, did he not? And in the book of Acts, he travels and encourages churches. He strengthens local pastors. There was one local pastor that he was really good friends with, Timothy. Wrote Timothy a couple of letters. And in one of those letters, Paul wrote this to Timothy, the pastor. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Just because you're in ministry doesn't mean you're exempt to the spiritual warfare you will encounter. Are you willing to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Believers at large, are we ready to endure? Superficial zeal will fall short and it will probably hinder you as it begins to unravel. It may hinder others when you hesitate as rubber meets the road. I think every sound and biblical presentation of the gospel really has to be explicit or at least implicit about the costs that will come. We dangle forgiveness and eternal life in heaven and they're all there to be dangled. There isn't anything you can dangle better than what Christ puts before us. But the way is hard. And narrow is the gate that leads there. And the servant is not above his master. There is a price to pay. So Jesus cautions the hasty disciple. There's a second case here presented by Luke right on the heels of that. As we read on, verse 59, to another, Jesus said. Jesus initiates here, right? Other people were listening to this, perhaps. And they're thinking, and and Jesus sees their faces and says, follow me. The second man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What? 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 What's going on here? We call this the the hesitant disciple. And you know something's wrong when Jesus gives a command and the the mouth says, uh, okay, but let me put you second. You're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, but hold on to your horses. You you're you're second. I've got something something else that's first. Do you hear that in the answer? It sounds polite. He's saying yes, but take a back seat, Jesus. That's that's what's there. It's not coming out rudely, but that's the thinking. What's what's this man concerned about? He has to go bury his father. Who who wouldn't do that? But let's remember in the ancient world, two things. First, it was the supreme filial duty 
to your family to care for your parents. And if the, the, a parent, especially a father, had died, you, you drop everything and you're there. What Jesus says rattles the social custom of the day to its core. Family, these, these are my parents. In the ancient world, there was no greater allegiance. Well, there's a second reality that will help us here understand uh, Jesus and his reply. In the ancient world, if someone passed away, it didn't take days and days and days to arrange the service or to embalm the body. The burial was usually the same day or the next morning. There was an immediacy to it. And if that man's father had died, he would not be walking with Jesus between towns. So I agree with the best scholars trying to understand the context of this saying is that this man instead was, had a very elderly father. His father was, was near the end of his life when it was obvious that it was okay to speak about that impending transition. But he wasn't dead yet. That seems to be the case. That explains why he's with Jesus. He, he, he could be there to hear the sermons and to see what was going on and, and go a little ways with Jesus. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too far with Jesus because there are other things that are, that are still in the works. My life is still caught up and I hesitate because of my family ties. Maybe the, an analogy, bring it down several notches, could be like this. You're, you've joined the church and, and the leaders of the church say, hey, could you maybe work with this ministry or could you do this or that job? And you're thinking, oh, you know, I still have one more child in high school, another two years of being a soccer mom or soccer dad. I, I, I got to say no to serving at the church because I've got this responsibility. And, and my analogy is, is just... Simple here, that's a good thing to be family oriented, but I'm just saying maybe we can relate that sometimes family ties compete with what God might be calling you to do. Our life gets entangled and our priorities are, are many, many. We wear many hats. So this man's hesitating to commit fully to Jesus because of his cares and concerns in other areas of life. What does Jesus say to this second man? Verse 59, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. From the second part of that verse, I think Jesus knew this disciple, that he was a believer. Maybe he had been on a a mission or or been involved in some other capacity that he was ready to be deployed. But he was hesitating. A lot of us look at our life and we try to bring balance by juggling many balls. I remember one of the first appointments with my faculty advisor at seminary. Finally got to seminary. 
and it was crazy. You're busy. You, I'm newly married. I've got work. I've got ministry. I've got classes. I've got Greek and Hebrew. And I said, Dr. Block, Dan Block, I said, Dr. Block, I feel like I'm juggling all these balls. Any advice? He said, pay attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Although he said it with a Canadian accent, with much more words than that. But it was so helpful. He said, your goal isn't to juggle as many balls as you can, but to pay attention to the one main thing. As Jesus said to Mary and Martha, there is but one thing necessary. Prioritize. Don't juggle. Jesus here says something very hard. He says, let the dead leave the dead to bury their own dead. And you, you would have a lot of fun reading the commentaries to see how they try to get Jesus out of trouble for saying something so crazy. What? Ignore a family? There's a funeral? I'm not going to go? Now, again, understand the context. It makes a lot of sense. The man hadn't died yet. He was just elderly, and someone was hesitating to move on with their life because their father was still waiting to die. Jesus says, let the world be concerned with the affairs of life, including death, But you understand the coming of the kingdom and take up matters of eternal life and eternal death. Prioritize is what Jesus is saying. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel of life. You understand what's most important. The body will die, but where will it go next? You know how to be right with the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. Take that truth. So, with that understanding, Jesus is saying leave the spiritually dead to bury the physical dead. Those who are awake to the work of Jesus, those who understand the kingdom, life and death, and issues bigger than life and death, we have work to do. I was uh, a work in progress as a young believer. Another thought comes to mind. I was uh, attended a, a rally at a church where they had a power lift team of evangelists come through. It was a little Baptist church, and they'd get these muscular men. They looked like cartoon character size. They were huge. They'd lift weights, set records, and do all these feats of strength, and then they'd preach the gospel. One of them mentioned coming on the scene of an accident on the roadside. They pulled their van over. He got out and helped, you know, lift a, a man out of danger. And as the man was laying dying, this hulk of an evangelist was preaching the gospel to this man. He may have been bleeding to death. But as he told the crowd, and this young believer says, I, I couldn't save his physical life, but I was trying to save his soul by preaching the gospel. I think Jesus is trying to get into our minds in the same way. Not that we ignore first aid. Not that we ignore a family funeral. 
but that we understand the greater value and priority of spiritual ministry and life. It can be transformative if we get our hands around this. So Jesus wants others to do their thing. He wants his followers to focus on kingdom work in the midst of this world. To prioritize spiritual life and work. Excuse me. And if we don't prioritize it now, if we keep hesitating, it's hard now, this is a hard choice, it only gets harder tomorrow and the day after. The choice doesn't go away. One Christian ministry called the Navigators uh, was famous for their scripture memory kit and their emphasis on scripture memory. I'm going to ask, if you ever worked with a scripture memory kit from the Navigators, raise your hand. I'm just curious. If you look around, you can ask them if that's so. In the first pack of cards, Matthew 6, 33. Raise your hand if you know Matthew 6, 33. You're going to make me cry. Come on. Matthew 6, 33. If you've ever heard of committing scripture to memory, perhaps this is the one you need. And you need it today. You need to look it up and underline it. Write it on the bulletin. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Did Jesus ever say anything more profound than that? Seek first the kingdom of God. He doesn't say ignore your parents. He doesn't say sell your house. He says prioritize. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's what Jesus asks. Jesus looked at this guy. Jesus picked this guy out. Follow me. Uh, uh, He hesitates. Brothers, seek first the kingdom of God. There's urgency here. There's spiritual work to be done. Have those conversations. Do what the Lord puts on your heart to do. Do not delay. Delayed obedience is hard to tell apart from disobedience. There's a third case here. Let's take a look. Third case, uh, Luke chapter 9 at the end of the chapter and verse 61. Yet another said, okay, some guy's been watching these exchanges and he, he chimes in. <clears throat> another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, there's, there's that foot in the mouth problem. But first... Let me say farewell to those at my house. This is a a disciple whose heart is divided. I I love you, Lord, and I will follow you. I'm volunteering. You didn't call on me, but I'm volunteering. I will follow you, but... Just take a back seat while I do something else first. That's, That's the first clue that... He's got a problem. Okay? 
I appreciate his honesty. And, and I think all three of these guys are, are growing and learning to be disciples. I'm not kicking them to the curb. But his half-heartedness is appearing here. I've got to say my farewells. And back then, you know, life was a little different than our connected life with telephones and, and interactions. If you took a trip and departed, you know, the postal service wasn't around back then. A lot of things. You wanted to put your house in order. You wanted to make sure to speak to all your relatives and your servants. You wanted to, to leave instructions. And if, if you run out of firewood, this is the guy you go to. And, and again, if you need a doctor, we always go to the guy in the house over there. All those details, details. And if I don't come back, all these details. His, 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 his allegiance and heart were divided the the ties with his life and responsibility and people and and serving Christ uh, he's in two places he doesn't see how they align the answer to G that Jesus gives is uh, equally unusual we can say that right Jesus is teaching and he pulls out a, a like a one sentence parable and he's talking about a farmer Jesus said in verse 62, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, so we need, is, is there a farmer, anybody used a hand plow before? Well, um, I've used a push mower. I, I can switch to that. And, and it's hard to push the mower and stay on the line where you're cutting the grass if you're looking this way. Who knows what you're going to cut? You go over those sticks if you're not watching. If you're plowing, and, and whether you're, you're, you're following an animal, or what, to get the furrow straight and make it useful, you have to pay attention. And if you're constantly looking back while you're trying to do this work, it doesn't work. Jesus is just giving common sense, but he's applying it spiritually. There's no way to plow a field while you're looking back. Your distractions, your divided allegiances will not serve either one well. When we get to Luke 17, Jesus will even give an Old Testament example. It's in a different setting, but Jesus brings up an Old Testament character named Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Lot and his wife lived in Sodom and near Gomorrah, and those cities were about to be destroyed. An angel says, Lot, grab your family and get out of there. Flee immediately. Time's up. This place is going down. And they flee. And the angel had said, don't look back. And as they're fleeing, as they seem to be getting out of harm's way, approaching the hills, before the city's out of sight, Lot's wife looks back. And according to the Bible, in Genesis 19, she became a pillar of salt. There was a judgment of God upon this woman who disobeyed the word of God in that setting. And Jesus brings that up in Luke 17. Why? Why? He was pointing to the fact that her death is an example of divine judgment that comes quickly on those who do not wholeheartedly obey the Lord's commands. 
We, we don't think of God in terms of judging that way, do we? Perhaps we should. That God takes his command seriously. That God means what he says. Hint uh, for parents, I've learned a little bit. Parents, if you say to your kids, stop that or I'm going to come over there. You can really only say that like once, maybe twice. You can't keep saying it and not go over there. God means what he says. Follow me. And you want to follow me. That's great, brother. But you can't keep looking back. Look unto me. I will shepherd you. I will lead you. And part of the Lord's leading, if you're a husband, a dad, a a grandparent, or a child, two parents, whatever God has called you to do in life, Christ will lead you in that calling. Christians should be the best workers. Christians should be the best family members. As Christ leads us to love others as ourselves and to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's no competition between these allegiances, so why keep looking back? Look to the Lord, and he will lead you to provide. Jesus has a lot to say to husbands and wives, how to love and serve their spouse. So don't keep looking around. Follow Christ. Again, Paul had so many things to say to Timothy, but let's look at what he says to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, Paul was talking about his own life and where he's come so far. Philippians 3, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He wasn't done yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Paul says, I still press on. I'm going forward. Part of that is forgetting what lies behind. And again, that's not an absolute. I don't remember what I did yesterday. No, he's not saying that. He's saying in terms of value, prioritize. I'm not looking back like this fellow. I'm looking to Christ. And Christ will help me. If there's leftover business, Christ will lead me to attend to it. So I'm looking to him and I'm pressing forward in my calling as a believer. And I'm so happy he mentions the prize. God is full of rewards and blessings for those who hear and obey his word. For those who follow him. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and you'll come to the Father because no one comes to the Father apart from me. I give eternal life. I give living water. He who drinks of me will never really thirst. Jesus offers a lot of rewards. So instead of looking back, juggling all those balls or whatever your issue is, look to Christ, prioritize him, and he will help you, guide you lead you it's a good moment to pause and remind you that the gospel call is not just a way to escape punishment for your sins when someone asks are you saved are you born again 
the focus is often on escaping your sin and the penalty which will be imposed in hell, a very real place Jesus speaks about. But Jesus doesn't just offer forgiveness by the cross. He offers a new life, the new birth, an inheritance in heaven, a new relationship with your maker. God, you can call him Father. If you come to Christ, if you're born again, born into the family of God, you can cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8. You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come just by sitting and listening to sermons. It comes by the individual putting their faith in Christ. Repent, believe, obey, live. I think in this text, Jesus might be speaking to someone here. Maybe for the first time. Saying, follow me. Stop hesitating. Follow me. Decide in your heart. Am I who I say I am? And follow me. Those who hesitate are really toying with unbelief. Jesus is who he says he is. And to tell him to wait, to tell him to take a back seat, to put yourself above him. No, no, no. It's incipient unbelief or doubt. And, and, and the struggle can be real. Just say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, I, I have these competing allegiances I'm not sure what it means to follow you help me and he will Jesus spent three years with these disciples bringing them along and teaching them but there's always the first step are you a disciple have you decided to follow Jesus though none go with me Still, I will follow. That's the question here. But as we move towards a, a closing here, let me also give you a few specifics, um, some applications, trying to just make sure we take away from this text some actionable items. We've had a few along the way, like memorizing Matthew 6.33, I may call on you next week. Let's look at these three. First, examine. Examine what? Examine your heart. Examine your soul. It's, a, it's, a, it's something we don't typically do. We, we brush our teeth in the morning or we get dressed, look in the mirror and all of that stuff. But we don't always look inward as we should. My friends, Christ knows your motives. He knows your struggles. And he calls us to a wholehearted trust. He calls us to not hesitate, not to be hasty, but to follow, to think and follow. So check your heart. Is it divided? We can repent and believe. We need to be ready to share in the suffering as a good soldier in Christ. Have we enlisted? It's time to serve. Have we said to Christ, I do, 
We need to spend time with our beloved. Examine your heart. Also, we need to strengthen our grip. Strengthen our grip on the plow. Um, I'm not talking about yard work. We're talking about following Christ. Maybe that's what he wants you to hear today. You're following and and, and you've gripped the plow, the work that Christ has given you to do. Stay the course. Look to that work and persevere in it. And for some of you, that calling is difficult. It may not be what you really want to do for the kingdom, but it's what God's given you to do. Sometimes that calling means parenting in a difficult position. God gives children, and if he gives them to you, there are duties. Or opportunities. Love your neighbors yourself. God's given you that unusual neighbor, and you're the one that connects with them. Stay the course. Strengthen your grip on the plow, and that includes that, that statement about where you're looking. So keep looking at where you're going. The Bible's filled with imperfect people who start out, but nevertheless go with God. In Sunday school, we're learning about the faith of Abraham when he was still called Abram. Abram, leave town. Leave your family. Go to where I show you. I'll show you when we get there. Come on, let's go. Abraham goes. Moses, when he finds out he's really the son of Abraham and Jacobed, of the people of God, leaves Pharaoh's household to be with the people of God and goes where God calls him to go. That's what the Bible shows us what it is to put your hand to the plow. Paul's word to the Corinthians, chapter 15, near the end, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You might think some of those words are are in conflict, where you're steadfast, immovable, but you're also abounding. He's talking about spiritual work, spiritual steadfastness. That's a big checklist. Maybe that's a checklist we need to pray about. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Ever bump into somebody who knew you when you were a brand new Christian? When that happens to me, my first thought is, are they still following Christ, my friend? Yes. And then my second thought is, what have we been doing for Christ? I just had my 45th Christian birthday, and I I think that way. And my high school class is having its 45th reunion next month. And I'm thinking, have those other believers stayed the course or not? A final exhortation. First examine, second strengthen. And the third one, I I, I say this, act now. Act now, A-C-T, act now. It's never too late to take that first step or to take a new grip on the plow. Surrender all to Jesus. 
There's a hymn that talks about that. All to Jesus I surrender. There's another hymn that says, My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. That's the one I'm thinking of. William Ralph Featherstone, uh, a Canadian. Uh, he became a Christian at 16 in Toronto, and he wrote this favorite, famous hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. He sent the poem to his aunt, and she gave it to a publisher, and it was out there for a little while. In 1870, it was in a London hymnal somewhere when a fellow named Adoniram Gordon found it. He was an evangelist, and he would later follow, found uh, Gordon College and Gordon Seminary. He found the hymn, but he, he liked the words, but he didn't like the tune. So he wrote a new tune, and that's the tune we have in our hymnal. You'll see his name. He gets credit for that, among other things. But I like the words, and I am dumbfounded that they were written by a 16-year-old convert in the 1800s. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior thou art. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. No looking back, no hesitancy, a thoughtful commitment to Christ. May God's word give us all that resolve and help. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for your word and our meditation upon it. May it have free reign in our hearts and minds. May it open all the closets and look under all the corners. May our life be laid bare before your word, Lord. You know our motives. You know our hearts. You see the good and the bad. And we pray, Father, that you would heal any divided hearts, that you would help the hesitant and lead and guide the hasty. Father, may we all be able to follow you in ways that please you and are for our good. May you give the strength and grace for each step. Father, we thank you for your Spirit's work. We thank you that your call to follow comes with the grace to obey. Father, it's for those who have yet to respond that we pray perhaps most sincerely. May they decide to follow Jesus. May you open their eyes to behold the Savior. Put it in their hearts, their hands, and on their lips to repent and believe. Father, may we continue to serve your kingdom ourselves in all these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.